Sharon is a very funny woman, but she has less faith in American individualism. In the first six minutes of the newsroom, the table is set for an intriguing new show by Aaron Sorkin. That Barack Obama was a socialist. Seriously. What Will McAvoy is a popular news anchor, sitting on a panel with two other news people on stage at a university. Behind them is a picture of Edward R. Murrow. McAvoy is clearly distracted from the political name-calling by his co-panelists and imagines he sees a woman in the audience. But that woman isn't there. Will, are you willing to say here tonight whether you lean right or left? The host pushes McAvoy to take a political side and he doesn't. Then a question comes from the audience. The next question. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Jenny. I'm a sophomore and this is for all three of you. Can you say in one sentence or less what... <laughs> um, you know what I mean. Can you say why America is the greatest country in the world? After some sidestepping the answer... The New York Jets. <laughs> McAvoy is prompted by his audience vision woman to speak the truth that no one wants to hear. Why is America Not the greatest, the greatest country in the world, Professor. That's my answer. He attacks his co-panelists and the question asker. Will McAvoy has, in that moment, decided and made it clear that the lies are not good enough. The facts don't support the perception, but that's not the controversial part as far as critics of the program are concerned. And yet you, a sorority girl, there is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. The controversial part comes directly after that. McAvoy starts preaching about how America used to be the greatest country in the world. Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for, for almost a full 90 seconds, McAvoy lists all the great things the USA we used to do. Great big things made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. After that, backstage, he blames his outburst on medication for vertigo and acts as if he is unsure of what he said on the stage. In the last 90 seconds of the opening segment, the tone for the possibilities of the show changes from witnessing the birth of a crusade for truth at any cost to a quixotic journey in which the good fight is nothing more than a symptom of mental illness. The newsroom is not just about a news anchor who may or may not be losing it. It is also a series of romantic comedies. It's a statement on the corporate interference in reportage. It is also the audience reaction to the show. It's also about the new star power of TV writers. There is more nuance in the newsroom than Aaron Sorkin's polemic scripts will lead us to believe. In this episode of Box Cutters, we're going to try to find out exactly what it is about the newsroom that has captured people's hearts and vitriol. In addition to some very special guests, we will hear... Brett Cropley. Courtney. Glenn Peters. John Richards. And I'm Josh Canal. This is Box Cutters. What did I say out there? One of the most important aspects of covering a TV show, covering the goings-on in a newsroom, is how realistic it is. Aaron Sorkin is often criticised for his utopian fantasies. 
We went to someone you might be familiar with. My name is James Tarlier, and until very recently, I was a TV news reporter. How realistic is the newsroom? In some ways it isn't at all, compared to the Australian experience particularly, and in some ways it's very real. In particular, the characters look as though Sorkin has drawn them as caricatures. Every single character in the four episodes of this show that I've seen so far, I have come across in my time in TV newsrooms, without exception and without exaggeration. Good, bad, polite, rude, stupid, self-aggrandising, you name it. If you've worked in a TV newsroom, you've seen it. TV newsrooms are places for big characters, big egos, to say that in itself sounds like a cliche, but, it, but that's the way they are. You're putting these people who are used to being big egos amongst themselves and presenting them to people who are sitting often alone in a darkened room in, in what is you know, considered a, a quite a vulnerable state. When we're used to looking at news people on, on TV, they're there informing us, helping us. Do you think that the newsroom is doing maybe a disservice to, to television news by... Uh, li- lifting the veil and uh, and making us realise that they're all really just a bunch of cocks. <laughs> See, well, this is where you and I differ, of course. And this is why I mentioned right now that this is how people behave in TV newsrooms. Because yep. I, I, as far as I understand it, you believe that Sorkin has gone out of his way to make all of these characters unlikable. And I'm telling you, I think he's gone out of his way to make these characters true to life for what you see in a newsroom. Do you enjoy watching it because it's so recognisable to you? Or do you enjoy watching it on, on other levels as well? No, I, I enjoy watching it primarily as a piece of entertainment. To mm-hmm. me, it's an Aaron Sorkin show. Right. That, that's And I've been hanging out for this show because I'm such a massive fan of Aaron Sorkin. And so far, I don't think I've been disappointed. And it, it sounds trite to say it, but this is utopian newsroom in the way that West Wing was a utopian US administration. That's that's very broad, and as I said, it kind of sounds trite, but to me, that's what this is. It's full of people who are trying to do the right thing, to try to appeal to the, the people's better angels, if you like. That's a, perhaps a Sorkin phrase for you. And there's nothing wrong with seeing that on our televisions. We'll be deciding what goes on our air and how it's presented to you based on the simple truth that nothing is more important to a democracy than... This is not the first time an Aaron Sorkin show has received huge backlash from critics and viewers. Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip was almost universally panned. I say almost because friend of box cutters... Lee Zachariah, purveyor of fine goods. ...is a staunch supporter of the series. I lo- One thing I really respond to in his writing, because there are lots of things, one thing in particular is his love of people who take what they do seriously, who don't just have a day job, who don't just do something because they can do it. They're committed 100% to doing what they do and it's the most important thing in the world to them and so when he writes people who take what they do seriously but they're writing a saturday night live clone it's 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 very easy to make fun of that and it's very easy to see that as hang on he's just writing the west wing in you know snl and you know what what why are these people so obsessed with with what they're doing who are we to make these decisions we're the media elite and I like that sort of 
you know, elitism has become a dirty word when used right. It's like people who are the absolute best at what they do and they're so best they're almost supernatural. And I, I really respond to that. Do you think TV news reporters are going to watch are going to watch the newsroom and think we need to be better at what we do? TV news reporters are going to watch this show and they're going to think we need to be better at what we do and then they're just going to keep doing what they do now because that's the way the system works. And that's the point as well. You need someone of Will McAvoy's stature or position in the system to affect change because you need guts to say, screw the ratings. We're just going to report the news. We're going to try to do it in such a way that the ratings follow. Let's not pretend that doesn't take guts in a commercial environment, right? That is, 99 times out of 100, a one-way ticket to the doll queue. It certainly does. Do me a favour. This is more than unprofessional. It's uncivilised. More than that, it's unprofessional. Just do me a favour, okay? This is what I don't get. Will McAvoy is one of the most flawed characters that Sorkin has written. He's a complete arsehole. He is... Uh, he is rude to everyone around him. He says stupid things loudly and angrily to people. He is not a particularly nice guy. What? The reason I'm leaving and the reason the others are. I'm affable! To strangers. And we keep hearing about how, wow, Sorkin really doesn't like women. At times, he really gets the gender stuff in a quite interesting way and he can be quite provocative about it. And at other times, he throws women under a bus and I think we've seen both those sides of him in this show so far. So it only took us about nine minutes to get to the gender stuff. This seems to be one of the biggest criticisms of both the newsroom and its critics. I'm Sarah Stokely. This is Sarah Stokely, who came to us as... I'm an online media consultant with a strong interest in politics. But ended up talking about gender because it wouldn't be a conversation about the newsroom otherwise. Take one of the ones that, that actually has some redeeming features to start with, um, and that's Maggie, actually. Maggie, Margaret. What's going on? We know as little, little She's as probably the, no. the character that I have a lot of hope you know for how she'll develop, but at the moment she's really bogged down in a really stupid love triangle um she keeps skewering the guys that are being dipshits to her unfortunately she's dating one of them and she wants to date the other one but her boyfriend in the first pretty much their first exchange in the show he honeys her in a way that you just want to slap him and it's quite obvious they're being set up that this is not this is not a good relationship. Why would you make a dumb decision when I'm offering loyalty. you the... Loyalty. I'm making a dumb decision out of loyalty. You're making a smart one out of ambition. Yeah. He can't remember your name, Maggie, and I'm the asshole. I was an intern, and he promoted me to his assistant. He didn't promote you, honey. He thought you were his assistant. Uh, in that first episode, um, Maggie is... Okay, it's Sorkin places a higher premium on loyalty than anything else. Loyalty in that first episode is represented by Meg, who is offered a better job, doesn't take it because she feels loyal to somebody who can't remember her name and doesn't know what her job is. But because she signed up with this guy and she's committed, she is the loyal one and she gets rewarded for that. Maggie is the representation of the thing that Sorkin loves the most in humanity. And she also has one really good exchange with... Um, Don and Jim. Can you do me a favor? There is a government agency called the MMA, the Minerals Management Agency. They have some kind of oversight over offshore drilling. I don't know anything about them. Can you write me a short memo? Sure. I'll do it. I can do it. You're not the only one with loyalty. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I can do this. Can you do this? You can't just look it up on Wikipedia, Maggie. He's right. I wasn't going to. She's Will's assistant. I'm an associate producer. Since when? About two hours ago. That's great. And you're wasting my time. You guys do get out of her who my boss is, but I'd like to get Where she says, well, right. while you guys fight about who's my boss, I'm just going to get on and do my work. 
work, which was fantastic. But the love triangle thing is really quite patronising and horrible. I think that love triangles are very traditional television fare and it's something that Aaron Sorkin's well aware of and has used before, you know, two two male characters in love with the same girl. On the other hand, the thing that frustrates me a lot he's trying to make us relate to the characters and how he does that is here are these people who are extremely intelligent and good at what they do and then here's the human side of them they're crap at relationships and that's what he does a lot of the time to humanize them and that gives it the balance between the intellectual side and the personal side mm-hmm. um but i think the problem is we have male characters tell us who who are capable and who's not Dad was margaret thatcher's ambassador to the un and she was born here and immediately locked in a room and shown Frank Capra movies until she was 21. She's like a sophomore poli-sci major, Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> it's exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess the only real difference are her two Peabody's and the scar on her stomach from the knife wound she got covering a Shiite protest in Islamabad. Welcome. Mackenzie McHale is the most intelligent person in the entire building. The two central women are shown, certainly in that first episode, to be better than everyone else. John Richards. People tell us characters are good at their jobs, but we don't see the proof of it. We keep being told that Emily Mortimer's character is meant to be this, she was an amazing foreign correspondent, she was embedded with your troops, she was amazing running a, a newsroom, but in episode three she can't send an email. She's incapable of sending an email correctly. She knocks something over. How did she not actually explode a mine on herself? In the same way that she's she's just as hopeless in relationships as Maggie, but she's supposed to be 10, 15 years older than her. This is Courtney Hawking. They're fairly interchangeable in their personal relations with people. The problem with the women in this is the problem with everything in this show, and I like it. Like, I'm watching it, and I'm going to keep watching it because I can pretend things are fine for years if I have to. The problem with this is it's it's a complete white baby boomer imperialist fantasy of what a newsroom would be like. And that's the problem with how the women are portrayed. It's the problem with how the technology is supposed to work and how quickly it's dismissed. If you see it through that prism, that's exactly where all the problems come from. Here's Glenn Peters. Look, I don't like Sorkin just yelling at me. I just don't like him saying what how things should be because sometimes they just aren't. And there's a point where they're talking about whether they should report Arizona someone dead or not. Gabrielle Giffords has been shot. And everyone else has reported it. And someone from upstairs uh, says, you have to report it. you got to be with everybody else. Gary, I need him in the hospital. He's there. CNN, MSNBC and Fox say she's dead. They're all going off the same NPR report. I'm not satisfied. Give a shit if you're satisfied. What the hell is he? Hey! We're going to show you now an interview Gabrielle Giffords gave just last year. This is Congresswoman Giffords. 30 seconds. What's going on? I'll call security. Every second you're not current, a thousand people are changing the channel to the guy who is. That's the business you're in. And they say, oh, but no, we need a confirmation whether that person's dead. Don, it's a person. A doctor pronounces her dead, not the news. I've drank with quite a lot of journalists. Mm-hmm. I know them. I... I they're not like that. They would have all, everybody I've met who's worked in TV news or proper newspaper journalism would have made the same call. This isn't a call. They would have all said, everybody I've met would have said, no, we can't report until we know. 
Um, so it's it's treating journalism really poorly. It's 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 a caricature. She's alive. Who's telling you that? The, the anesthesiologist. She's being prepped for surgery. I've got her alive. If you are called it wrong, she's alive. She's alive. Well. All right, we're learning now that Giffords is being prepped for surgery and we have our ACN affiliate at University The Gabriel Giffords issue, that, that episode particularly Matt, in uh, right stuck in my, in my throat because, not, not in a sad way, in a chicken bone way, <laughs> uh, because all news sources got that wrong. All news sources got that wrong and the only reason that Atlantis didn't get it wrong was stubbornness. No, not stubbornness. Following... Accepted journalistic protocol. So why did nobody else follow accepted journalistic protocol on that day? How did NPR and, and get it right wrong? there? That's the whole point of this show. That's the whole point of this show. Why don't we follow these practices anymore? Why is it suddenly that it's not um, appropriate or desirable to wait for the second source before you report it as fact? Why have we come to this situation? What effect is that having on the understanding people have of their politicians when they walk into the voting booth? That's what this show is about. That's why it's important, because out here in the real world, we're fighting exactly the same issues. And, and, and why should we not aim for that? anymore. What this is showing is that we're now, we're now operating in a world of 24-hour news channels where the task isn't just to fill the airtime, which is hard enough, but it's to try to be first with everything that's important every time. That is why particular news channels around the world have earned themselves the tongue-in-cheek motto, never wrong for long. And they do it in exactly the way that was shown in that episode. Pretend you're not putting yourself on the line put a strap across the bottom of the screen that says NPR reporting. Not us. NPR saying it. We're just saying that they're saying it, but we're waiting. Well, you know, don't bullshit a bullshitter. This is the world we're in, right? What people take away from that is, oh, my God, she's dead. What this show is saying is, is that standard good enough? especially in a democracy. Is that standard good enough? It's clearly saying that it isn't. I think that was the most patronising of any Sorkin episodes ever. And I think the comment you made earlier about this is the, the white male imperialist thing was spot on and that assessment of journalism is spot on. You know, Will has a line where he says, Mackenzie and I will decide what mm. the news is. And, and if we teach everyone how, how the right way to do things is, everything's going to be fine. Like they're some Christian missionaries of journalism, but it's like it's. I'm not looking for it to be a completely true, true, real world documentary. This is Brett Cropley. I'm happy to go with it as um, a, a narrative fiction, and and putting me putting me in a position where where I actually get excited about these about these reveals and and the whole. That it's not locked into to a template. Well, we've only seen four episodes, but it's not locked into a template. I do find sometimes people just panic just a, a little bit too much. People in the show, um, Mac, Mac with the the emails, which you know is, is stupid technology stuff. That that so she kind of just loses it and and stuff like that's annoying but it's not the dominating thing of the show at all for me i think that's minor and it's really interesting josh because I, there's a, a tech thing which for me is much more glaring and actually much more important because it speaks to not just 
you know, the amount of research or tech savvy that's behind the writing, but also goes direct to the heart of the news that they're actually talking about. And that's the WikiLeaks issue. Okay. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there, I can't remember which of the, the opening couple of episodes that it, it happens in. Uh, actually, it's episode three. I've written it's a, it episode down. three. Yep. Um, Jim makes a really dismissive comment about WikiLeaks, which Neil is, is really excited about it, and Neil says it's going to be a game changer. I just couldn't be less interested in WikiLeaks. You're nuts. The open sourcing of classified information is going to be an absolute game changer for journalists of our generation. All I heard was sounds coming from the mouth of a nerd. Have you scanned the WikiLeaks cables? No, Neil, because I spend my time trying to find and protect my sources. This right here is always the swan song of the obsolete when you stare the future paradigm in the face. He on the side of technology went, you know who said that? It was you. I was sitting right here. Napoleon. Things worked out well for him. Well, that girl standing here a minute ago. Yes, you scared them off with your wiki nerd pitch. Now, my issue with this is this was this was set in um, April of 2010 when the Deepwater Horizon um, oil spill happened. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to give you a really quick recap of all the stuff that WikiLeaks had already revealed by that time. Okay. So in 2008, they revealed a whole bunch of Scientology documents. Um, they also published the Sarah Palin emails. In December 2009, um, they revealed a draft agreement from the uh, Copenhagen Climate Conference, which um, was discussing aborting Kyoto, which had really big ramifications for the agreement that came out of that conference. Um, in April 2010, right before this is meant to have been filmed uh, or is set, um, WikiLeaks published the video of the US Apache helicopter killing Iraqi civilians and two Reuters journalists. Mm -hmm. Now, the guy who Sorkin has dismissing WikiLeaks as a blip and completely irrelevant is someone who's supposed to have been embedded in Iraq. And maybe he knew those two Reuters journalists. Like that to me is the really, really big problem here that he's still got um, people that were foreign correspondents dismissing WikiLeaks totally shot to shit in my opinion if you want to discuss problems that's the problem what i really appreciate it for is that sorkin's using it almost as a soapbox to the to be able to to make these statements about what he's seeing about the media that's wrong and just calling it out for what it is that that right-wing news news services just lie to their viewers um that's uh that you know the shock jocks pretty much do the same that current affairs and news tv services uh in the in the states have just become nothing but shouting matches where you get two people on different cameras in different studios and they just shout at each other it's all bullshit and that's and that is what aaron sorkin's calling out the media for the the news media in the u.s for and i think it's it, i think it's extremely important for that but my problem with that is that John Stewart made that point eloquently ten years ago with that CNN interview. You were you killing want to a Mary. Show to a comedy show, you're more than no, no, welcome to. No, no, here's here's the point. If, if, Terry that's, doesn't if have, that's your goal, you know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about I felt my responsibility. Where he did to make the, those you know, points, and that point's been made blindingly obvious. Is that the news organizations look to Comedy Central for their cues on integrity? So, <laughs> right. um, no, no, what, what I would suggest is. When you talk about you're holding politicians' feet to the fire, I think that's disingenuous. 
If your idea of uh, confronting me is that I don't ask hard-hitting enough news questions, we're in bad shape, fellas. We're here to love you, not confront you. No, 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 but, but what, what I'm saying is, is this. I, I'm not. I'm here to, to confront you because we need help from the media, and they're hurting us. I think Aaron Sorkin comes in and just yelling about how bad everything is, is lazy. Show a nuance newsroom doing things the right way, but don't just so announce it and punch us in the face with it. It, it, It's just such awkwardly over-the-top diatribe. You know, this show is like a stoner cornering cornering you at a party and talking about how Google owns the world. It's infuriating. And another question I have is, is Aaron Sorkin intelligent? Is he making this intelligent television? I have to say, this is extremely dumb television. There's no eloquence. There's no grace. There's no people listening to each other. Silence. There is no excellent writing. This is one of the most poorly written pieces of television I have ever seen in my life. You're doing theatre. When you should be doing debate, which would be great. Well, do do de- no, so it's, it's not, not honest. What you do is not honest. What you do is partisan hackery. And I'll, and I'll tell you, you why and John I, I know. You on your show, and you sniff his throne, and you're accusing us of partisan hackery. Absolutely, you're you've a, got to be kidding me. You're on CNN. And you say. My, the show that leads into me is puppets making crank phone calls. <laughs> what is wrong with? You? There's also a problem at McAvoy's newsroom, which is cl- they, they claim it's going to be this fair and, and, and you know, real thing. But then what we see is a whole episode where he's just he's just getting teabag people in and <laughs> and having a go at them. It's but he's just doing gotcha journalism. He's just doing exactly the things they've said they shouldn't be doing. They're just doing bad getting people in and going, ha ha, and you're going, that's what you said you weren't meant to be doing. Also, did we mention the fact that it's real news from two years ago? Which is, some people have said is a problem from a narrative purpose, because we know how it's going to end. I don't think that's a huge problem. I do find it unbelievably tacky, though, to use real people's deaths to make fairly piddling drama from. I think it's really important that they're all true life events. A lot of people I saw made fun of the fact that the subtitle comes in that first episode, the 2010. I think that's so important, because there's absolutely nothing up until that point to indicate that we're in 2010. When the oil spill happens, for all we know, it's another uh, West Wing situation where they're trying to find a parallel to 9-11 without doing 9-11 again, so they can talk about these issues without. And you don't want to spend the whole episode thinking, are they, is this the oil spill or are they doing a different oil spill to make it look like, and why isn't he changing anything? Because it looks identical to, you don't want to spend the whole time wondering that. You want a quick way of telling the audience, no, this is the one that you know and move on. And I had that moment of, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. That was a nice surprising moment. I don't think having text come up on a screen is inherently bad storytelling. I think in that moment, it was the right thing to do. And the fact that he is using events that we all know, I I think there's a great advantage to the fact that we're ahead of the game, that we're ahead of everyone, and that we can feel like, okay, well, with that hindsight, how would we react? And hey, if we're going to react with that hindsight, what about the stuff that's happening now? You know, why, why aren't we applying that to the events that are happening right now? And so I, th- I think I think it is a, a reasonable mix of fantasy with reality, but without the reality, the show would be nothing. There's a line that Emily Mortimer character gets, which is more meaningful, I think, than it's supposed to be, where she says, 
we don't make good television, we make the news. And somehow that sums the show up to me. It's not good television. But there are lines like that all the way through. There are lines that talk about how the show... There are lines that you can use in the in the episodes that are about the show that you're watching. I I actually think it's a lot better constructed than than the words Sorkin uses lead us to believe. These long speeches and stuff, it's all it's all magic tricks. I think he's a really good writer who is overwriting, possibly in this situation, either overwriting for a purpose or has stumbled accidentally on an amazing experiment. There's a wonderful en- Emily Nosbaum review in The New Yorker where she says long words aren't smart. Sorkin is often presented as one of the orators of modern television, an innovator and an original voice, but is more logically placed in a school of showrunners who favour patter-speak, point-counterpoint, and dialogue-driven tributes to the era of screwball romance. Some of this banter is intelligent, just as often, however, it's artificial intelligence, predicated on the notion that more words equal smarter. From the New Yorker, 25th June 2012, linked to on our website. So I've been yelling at Aaron Sorkin for many years, saying, stop it with all your long words and your long speeches. You can be intelligent by saying not much. And actually... It's really hard to write beautiful lines, eloquent lines of dialogue. And if you can do that, you can do so much. But he just like, it's on and on and on. And then I've seen other television shows follow in this sort of trend of stupid long words throughout. I just don't think it's smart. It's just sad to watch intelligence portrayed in only one way. Um, it, it's like a fight at a Scrabble convention. That's, that's all it is. Peter Carey wrote the greatest piece of advertising that this country's seen with the fish John West reject. It is beautiful. It says so much. It does so much. In one, the one fish, two, John West, three, we'll give that one word, reject four. There's four words saying an incredible amount. Nike, just do it. There is an absolute social movement behind just do it. Can you remember a quote from an Aaron Sorkin television show? I think Sorkin does write amazing speeches and I, I have been really moved in some of his works by the speeches there are some I think miss as well but he can he does have that power to really hit those speeches I think it's surprising though in the newsroom how many of those are failing uh, even even that first one he gives at the beginning of, of the first episode it is too long it hits these amazing points and it should get out and it keeps going and somebody who's been working 30 to 40 years in journalism like this main character if anything he's learned is brevity and how to tell the right story once. The problem is at the start of the at the start of the series, he has lost that ability. He's lost what it was that made him a good newsman. I think that's that's what is alluded to in uh, 
Jane Fonda's speech when she talks about how he used to do the feel-good stories and he used to do the human interest stories and where is all of that? And and the and the answer is well that's not news. That over time and through uh, through money and his own corruption, he's forgotten how to be a good journalist. So what we're witnessing, as fucking painful as it is, is his re-education. That's that's what I think is is happening here. I think one of the reasons it is an unlikable show is because it is a very uncomfortable situation with a bunch of people who are fucking assholes. Right? I, I, that's 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 what I that's why I think we don't like it. I wonder about the haters though. And I'll give you two examples. One is a review I read out of the states that said that in effect that said you know Sorkin it's stagey writing. Um, it's very in-house. You've got to get the jokes to get it. Um, a lot of it's very forced. A lot of it's very... It, it, it really um, is him pushing his opinion down your throat. For the Sorkin fans who love that no matter what, they're going to love it. And if you don't like it, you're not going to like it. Well, okay. What that effectively comes down to is it's not that reviewer's cup of tea. Whereas... It's clear that there are millions of Sorkin fans around the world who love that stuff about him, mm-hmm. right? And then there's another example I heard, which was um, which came to me secondhand, and it was that a TV reporter in Melbourne had said, "I'm not going to watch this show because it won't be anything like what our newsroom is." That's illogical, clearly. Right, I happen to work in a newsroom that isn't a carbon copy of the newsroom that is portrayed in this program. Therefore, it's bad, and I'm not going to watch it. Well, so this is why I wonder about the level of. And you're right; there is it's it's not just dislike. People loathe this show if mm. they don't like it. They loathe it, and and I personally can't quite figure out why. What I love about this show is not watching it. What I love about this show is I've not met a single person who has seen it who is not passionate about it. Everybody who has seen it either absolutely loves it or absolutely hates it. Nobody is dispassionate about the newsroom. But we're going to have to leave it there. When we come back, Deepwater Horizon sinks to the bottom of the Gulf. This was episode 313 of Box Cutters. It was produced and edited by Josh Kinnell with John Richards and Brett Cropley. And help from Glenn Peters and Courtney Hawking. Peter Wilson makes your downloads faster with his mind. Thanks to James Delia, Lee Zachariah, Sarah Stokely, Emily Nussbaum and Lyndall McIlwain. Please tell your friends about Box Cutters, link to us on your Facebooks and Twitters, and give us 5-star reviews all over the place. Until next week. Hey! Let's be careful out there. Hi, this is Pete Smith. You've been listening to, or have just missed, Box Cutters.